Okay, so uh, welcome back. And uh, today we're going to be uh, discussing theories of nationalism. Now, uh, last couple sessions we've talked about uh, the evolution and development of the modern state and also the origin of ethnic groups. And in, in those discussions, we got into a little bit this question of to what extent um, modern politics, or which is more of a top-down process, or culture, symbols, myths, etc., are playing a role in shaping identity. So is it just about the movement of political elites, elite interests, which are shaping uh, the state or the nation, or is it, on the other hand, uh, deeply rooted senses of, of myths and symbols, complexes of myths and symbols within populations, and therefore something that doesn't change so quickly. Uh, and that's the kind of question that we're going to be addressing today more formally by considering uh, theories of nationalism and ethnicity. And I'm going to try and kind of set out for you uh, a, a sort of grid or typology which I think helps to make sense of some of the issues that we're going to be uh, looking at in this literature. And I kind of break it down into three basic questions which are related and which a lot of theorists would have similar views on. So if they take a particular position on the first question, they take a similar position on the others and vice versa. Not entirely, but largely. And really, there's a what, a why, and a when. So the what question is the definition of ethnic groups and nations. What is an ethnic group? What is a nation? Now, we've talked already about that, but I did indicate that there was some uh, dispute over the exact definition of an ethnic group and nation. For example, a, a modernist writer um, such as um, Anthony Giddens would, would describe the nation as a, uh, a power container, really, whereas uh, a more kind of ethno-symbolist, a perennialist writer like Walker Connor would talk about a nation as a self-aware ethnic group. So that shows you two different definitions coming from people on different sides of the theoretical debate. And similarly, obviously, there's going to be a debate on the motivation behind ethnic group and nation. Uh, so this, this why question, why uh, did these groups arise and what, why do they continue to be influential in modern life? And then lastly, the when question. Uh, when was the nation, if you like? Is it a modern construct or is it something with earlier roots? in the pre-modern period. And you'll see that there are um, debates over this question that divide groups of theorists who we can roughly categorize into modernist and ethno-symbolist. Um, and so I'm kind of, let me just grab my pointer here. Yeah, so in terms of the why question, why ethnic groups? And actually, you can, um, you can equally replace this ethnic group with, with nation. It's, it's not, in some ways, it's the same question. Why did an ethnic group or nation arise? And I've got three different, uh, it doesn't like to work, I've never figured out why these things always are so difficult. Um, no, it's not going. So you've got basically three different uh, schools of thought there. The first, which you can call modernist, you can call instrumentalist. They're not exactly the same thing, but they're pretty close. Uh, there's a second school, which you can call perennialist or ethno-symbolist. These terms, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was, I was going to ask one that question, actually, because couldn't you say ethno-symbolism is also instrumentalist? Because it's about, it's just for belonging rather than for power but it's still for something, right? Well, in, in the sense, I think what, the, what you're driving at is that um, there, there's a kind of substantive rationality to both, that they're both going after a particular goal. Yeah. <coughs> it's just that, so they're both in that broad sense kind of self-interested and rational. It's just that they're, uh, and this, this gets in, we can get into debates over what rationality means and then. Uh, Max Weber had this distinction between instrumental and substantive rationality. But I think for the purposes of this, I think I'm going to define kind of instrumental rationality narrowly to mean the pursuit of power and wealth. 
rather than cultural, spiritual type motives. Um, so, so ethnosymbolism here as a second school, and then thirdly, we'll talk a little bit about sociobiology or uh, a sort of a, a neuro, um, not neuro, evolutionary psychology perspective, which we won't say much about because it's more or less a very minority uh, view within the discipline, although it actually has received a little bit more attention recently with um, more discussion in evolutionary psychology. And essentially, the first view, which is the instrumentalist one, uh, has a whole range of different positions with regard to um, aspects of the theory. The first is, who are the key actors within the theory? And for the instrumentalist, it would be either the bourgeoisie, uh, if you're a Marxist, or some form of elite, political elite, if amongst rational choice or non-Marxist uh, instrumentalists. The motivation also behind the formation and maintenance of ethnicity. Here we've got uh, the acquisition of power and wealth and perhaps status. So those instrumental motivations for the elites really central to this theory. Um, for the ethnosymbolist, by contrast, if we could compare it to a modernism where modernism really focuses a lot on the bourgeoisie and the political elite and their instrumental motivations. For the ethnosymbolist, it's actually either going to be romantic intellectuals uh, who are pursuing non-material motives, such as authenticity, meaning, security, and belonging. Yes, they've also got instrumental motives, but a lot of what is motivating them for ethnosymbolists has to do with some kind of spiritual quest for authenticity. So it's not something that can be narrowly reduced to the pursuit of wealth and power. Uh, and this is where literary intellectuals, for example, uh, and groups who, whose economic status is not so easy to define, such as teachers, for example, or educators, hard to pinpoint them within a class structure in the same way as the bourgeoisie, for example. Um, so there's, a, there's an important difference in terms of the elite that is seen to be important for nationalism. The stress here being more the uh, economic and political elite and here more of a kind of cultural elite, perhaps sometimes an insurgent cultural elite, not necessarily from the top part of the society. Second thing that uh, the ethnosymbolists place, place an emphasis on is that the mass of the population do count. Um, you can't simply invent anything and have it take hold. Uh, there has to be some kind of a resonance with the mass of the population. And that puts a limit on what the elites can invent. So it limits the degree of fabrication and invention and fluidity of, of constructs, of national identity. Um, so those are some important differences in terms of elites. Now, what about the origin, then, of the ethnic group or nation? And here, the difference arises through the fact that, in this case, it's through elite competition for power, wealth, and resources. Uh, and in that competition, elites are trying to mobilize support so that they can win in power terms over the other side, so that they can therefore lay their hands on political and economic resources. Uh, whereas in the case of the ethnosymbolists, there's a more of a range of motivations, one of which is, uh, again, because of this quest for authenticity and meaning, you have these intellectuals who then pursue activities such as historicism, researching in archives, archaeology, um, creating dictionaries, poetry, whatever. So this kind of activity, and then subsequently to that, uh, raising consciousness amongst a wider set of the population. They also put a lot of emphasis on uh, mass phenomena such as contact between groups that have different cultures, warfare, and some of these uh, popular processes that can feed into the formation of identity. So it's, much, it's less of a top-down process. There is still an intellectual elite, however, that is that ethnosynthesis would say are important in raising consciousness and developing national identity. So it doesn't just happen from below. It's, it, to some extent, it happens from below. But to some extent, it's also about mobilization by a cultural elite. And 
Then we get to the question, the when question. Uh, and here I think very clearly for the instrumentalist or modernist school, which is right here, uh, the focus is on the modern period. So nations are modern, and in many ways ethnic groups too are modern as imagined communities. Uh, because you only, in the modern period, get this development of mass communications through roads, through print capitalism, through government bureaucracy, through all of these conscription, all of these processes which lead to mass society. And that's, it's in that kind of society you can get the spread of an imagined community beyond the face-to-face -face community to the wider uh, community. Whereas against that, for ethno-symbolists, they would say, well, uh, actually, as soon as you have printing, or, or soon, as soon as you have literacy, uh, which is after, let's say, 6000 BC, the Neolithic period, it is possible to have imagined community. You can talk about ancient Assyria, ancient Egypt, ancient Rome, ancient Greece, even as imagined communities. And therefore, the, the key really is this, this idea of having a, a, an intellectual elite that can read and pass on tradition. Uh, so being able to pass on traditions of who the group is, what their history is, is very important. So you do need to have an elite. You do need to have institutions that can reproduce the tradition and pass it down over generations. That's very important. Um, but that doesn't have to be just the modern period and modern print capitalism. It could be through religious leaders, or typically religious leaders, who, who would then uh, reproduce the culture. So this is the group that could read in pre-modern societies, and they would have a key role as uh, custodians of the, the traditions of the group, of the civilization. And then finally, um, in terms of the process of ethnogenesis here, it's either going to be uh, a nation-state elite that invents, if you like, the nation through school textbooks, uh, through statues and ceremonies and, and warfare and so on, or it's going to be uh, competing sub-state elites who break away from the nation, let's say, or the empire to create their own separate states. Yeah? Uh, is there actually any conflict between primordialism and the other two, especially as symbolism? Because could you say primordialism is just establishing a psychological basis and then on which the romantic intellectuals build so right. I, don't, I, don't, I don't really get why it's sort of either or, because it seems they're actually looking at completely different questions. I mean, I, I, I don't think paramodologists actually think that, you know, in, in prehistory people had the, had the identity. I, mean, I guess they're looking at what develops the psychology that can be then constructed into the nation. Well, that's a good point. I was, I was saving primordialism until I... Gotten through these, and now I'm going to talk about. So it's a nice lead-in, actually, that you provide me, because I'm going to just I'll talk about primordialism, and then we can return to your excellent question. So, so just, but just to briefly recapitulate, these two here, um, we can see some distinctions first in terms of the, the leading actors, and in terms of the timing. So the modern period, the pre-modern, pre-modern, but but only during the period of written records and written history, right? So there's there's a an important caveat here. It's not prehistory, which is what we'll see with, with the primordialist position. They would argue that you had ethnicity in prehistory, even before written records. So that's actually going a step further in terms of the position. Um, yeah. So that would be a good one. Uh, that's yeah. 1789. That means the French Revolution. This is the French France, Revolution, yeah. Because I've seen somewhere uh, in two places, uh, they just said 1780s. Right, right, right. Is that, a, is that a difference? Um, I don't know why Hobbes said 1780. Yeah. I'm not sure he ever justified it in his book. Um, why he put 1780? I just uh, it, it might have just been a convenient thing to stick in there. I don't. Uh, but generally, you know, it doesn't actually much matter whether we date it to 1789. Generally, people would look to 1789 because it's the French Revolution and the creation of a kind of state-type nationalism. But uh, I think, as we talked in an earlier class, you could talk about the American Revolution, even though it's less of a state-based nationalism, it's more of a kind of federation of states, so maybe it's less of a, of a prototype. But generally, people are talking post-French Revolution. Um, I just want to actually, let me just see. I, I, we can also talk a bit. I'm going to go back to primordialism, by the way. I'm just going to kind of 
finish here um, to talk a little bit about a little bit more about this difference between um, instrumentalist or modernist and ethnosymbolist and uh, perennialist. And so we've gone on to the when question. So back here it was the why question, and here's the when. Now, last time we did talk about the when question, this idea of pre-1789 for the ethnosymbolists, but post-1789 for the, for the modernists. And, and so similarly here, again, that emphasis on, on the modern period as the period when you get mass society, mass identity, which is what nation or, or ethnic group is all about. Um, and that entails a certain view of what was there before. So for a modernist, when they look back before 1789, their view of a social structure is one in which there is a, a, an, an elite in the empire. So the Habsburg Empire or the Spanish Empire, whichever empire you care to focus on, the, there was an elite there that had an imperial outlook, not national, but imperial. These were multilinguistic empires. Uh, and then the masses who had a very localized um, form of experience. They never uh, left their village. They had very much a face-to-face -face, um, concept of community, their localized village. So a very local or a kind of very cosmopolitan outlook, depending if you were elite or if you were part of the peasantry. So that kind of view of the pre-modern world is, is predominant for modernists. Uh, and again, what they then place a lot of emphasis is on you get a lot of you get the development of the modern state. That's the first thing that happens is because of gunpowder or, or artillery technology and because of uh, the shift from feudalism to capitalism and because of these material developments, you get a modern state which then necessitates the invention of patriotism in order to get conscription and taxation. And so actually, it's all the state and material stuff that comes first, and that necessitates the nation. Uh, and then you get maybe competitor elites who say, well, we don't want to be part of this nation, so we're going to, we Czechs are going to break away from, from the Habsburg Empire. Again, as a, as a move to acquire power and wealth, not as a cultural thing, but as a, as a political thing, as a, uh, as a means to a, an instrumental end. That would be kind of the modernist argument with regards to the origin of nation. Uh, and some of the major writers are listed down here. Uh, Eric Hobsbawm, Ernest Gellner, uh, Anthony Giddens, Benedict Anderson. A number of these figures, by the way, who uh, wrote uh, their key works here in London either, I mean, Hobsbawm obviously here at Birkbeck, but uh, uh, Gellner, uh, Giddens at the LSE, um, and actually uh, Anthony Smith at the LSE as well. So kind of an interesting link there. Uh, so major theorists in, in modernism. Then we have the ethnosymbolist here, we can call it perennialist. There's a fuzzy line. I don't want to get into that distinction just yet, because I don't think it's a very important distinction. But still, their argument is that it's uh, any time after written records, so after 6000 BC, you can have uh, ethnic group and nation form. Uh, and they would say, well, OK, you have a real range. We talked in the session on the origin of ethnic groups. You, know, you have some uh, of those aristocratic ethnic groups, such as which, which he lists in, such as the Turks, perhaps, or the Scots, these groups that uh, you have a kingdom, and then the identity comes down the social scale to en encompass the masses. Or you have others, such as the, um, the Jews, religious sects, or frontier ethne, or some of those other uh, warrior bands, which we talked about, where you might get large agglomerations of groups. Uh, and that was a neat discussion about the Mongols, you guys. Thanks a lot for that. That's sort of part of this idea of whether you can have pre-modern uh, ethnicity. Um, so they, they would claim, yes, you have got some pre-modern ethnicity, uh, not everywhere all the time, but in some places at most times in human history. We can see examples of ethnicity uh, and, and even ethnic states. Um, emphasis very much on cultural intellectuals, be they religious scholars, religious scholar intellectuals, or secularized romantic intellectuals, uh, romantic nationalist intellectuals. So these were all, this, there's an important cultural elite strata, um, which may not necessarily be part of the established political and economic elite, but they may be actually uh, disenchanted with the, with the state of affairs. But they are still writing, communicating with each other, and therefore they're important in the formation of identity. Uh, and some of the major writers here are uh, John Armstrong, 
Anthony Smith, uh, Walker Connor, and Adrian Hastings. And there are some more recent, there are a few more recent writers who we could mention, who we will mention uh, a little bit later on. Okay, I just want to skip back to talk a little bit about primordialism, because I didn't say a whole lot about this. Um, and what, really what primordialism, if you think about uh, modernism or instrumentalism, it's really uh, suggesting that political and economic forces are primary. So it's economic self-interest or the quest for power or the impact of institutions that really is coming first and then all the cultural stuff comes second as a byproduct of the first. The ethno-symbolists, by contrast, are really putting a lot of emphasis on culture and history as being the driver. Uh, and in many ways, the politics and the economics is, is, is often secondary. So um, nations are, it's when you get cultural formations, myths and symbols, which come together in institu cultural institutions, which reproduce those myths and symbols, which then have attraction, what Durkheim would call a social fact, and then moves through time, through history, uh, regardless necessarily of what's going on politically, whatever the mode of production is, whether the political unit breaks up, comes back together, still they would put a lot of emphasis on the independent role of culture and history through time. And then finally we come, so if this is about politics and economics and this is about culture and history, well, primordialism is about biology and evolutionary psychology. So it's about human universals, really. And this, you know, one of the leading theorists of primordialism who we'll talk about in a minute is Pierre Vandenberg. And so for Vandenberg, his argument is really that it's, you know, the formation of ethnic groups is almost an instinctive thing. Uh, it comes out of our uh, innate tribalism, if you like, which really owes its roots to uh, the fact that individuals, if you go back into evolutionary prehistory, so way back to, to the formation of our species, you know, certainly well before written records, uh, perhaps with the emergence of, of humans around 100,000 years ago or 50,000 years ago, uh, in that evolutionary race, the, the human beings who cooperated with those who shared uh, genes with them uh, ultimately survived better. And I'll, I'll explain this in a minute when we talk about Vandenberg's work, but the argument there is what that means is that today we have an evolved disposition to cooperate more with people who share more genes with us than those who share fewer genes with us. Uh, so it's this idea of the maximization of group fitness through cooperation with those who share more genes. Now, of course, no one's walking around with DNA tests in the, in the pre-modern age, so you have to then look for uh, proxies for shared genetics. And, and um, this is where we get into uh, issues such as uh, race, um, but also customs, because usually groups that, that were next to each other looked the same. So you couldn't really use race very easily. Um, but anyway, I will uh, talk about that a little bit more. Just suffice to say right now that for uh, primordialists, ethnic groups have always existed as long as humans have existed. So you can have an ethnic group that is as small as 500 people. That's not a problem uh, for the definition of ethnicity uh, used by primordialists. Uh, and finally, it doesn't really require an elite. Since it's instinctual, it's really very much from the bottom up. Uh, it's a mass phenomenon, and it happens organically, automatically. It doesn't require this kind of mobilization, which is the emphasis of, of these two schools. Uh, OK. So I'm just going to talk a bit, just a little bit more about primordialism of Pierre Vandenberg. And, and he wrote this book, The Ethnic Phenomenon, in 1979. And he used the term uh, collective nepotism. Many of you will know the term nepotism, so giving a job to your, your family or your uncle or you know, your friends, that sort of idea of favoring your relatives uh, is, is very relevant to his conception of uh, what's driving ethnicity. It's this idea of favoring those who share your, who are related to you, in some, who you perceive to be related to you genetically. And why are you going to cooperate with them? Well, because 
the more you cooperate with people who share your genes, uh, the better your genes are going to do in the future. They're going to win out in the evolutionary race. And so you've got to cooperate with people who are as similar to you as possible, and, and you you're less likely to cooperate with people. Yeah? Just kind of after or before um, selfish gene theory before? Uh, before. I believe before, although I don't know when Dawkins is. It's quite old, isn't it? It's about 1972 or something. Well, that was after. That would have been after. But Dawkins didn't invent that theory. He was popularizing yeah. it. Right, right. I think it was a few. Yeah. I mean, certainly this idea of, of uh, evolutionary psychology and, 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 and had been around already. Um, and so he was definitely leaning on this literature, this, this Darwinian literature, to argue that what people do is because they don't, you're not able to tell if someone shares a lot of genes with you. You have to use whatever evidence you can find, which is typically going to be uh, appearance. And since appearance is very difficult to use because most, particularly prehistoric groups, live next to other groups who look the same, uh, they would then have to look at dress customs, language, and other kinds of perhaps tattoos and different kinds of cultural markers, which they use as a proxy for relatedness. Uh, and this is where you then start to get the, the origin of ethnicity through this idea of cultural markers, which mark out one group off from another. Um, but this is all driven by the fact that those who cooperate with others who share the same genes are more, their genes are more successful. So it's kind of almost something that has developed over time in the human species this instinct to, to cooperate with those with similar genes. So um, just, yeah. Yeah, I would like to just ask because uh, you, said, you mentioned before about it that even 500 people it would be as right. an ethnic group. So do primordialists of sociobiological variant, they discard completely the idea of necessity for imagined equality? Yes. As such, yes? Yeah, so I mean, I've, yeah, Vandenberg was quite famously on the record for uh, you know, saying you know, as few as 500 people could be an ethnic. So that's, you know, and I think others would, would take issue with that and say, no, it's got to be imagined. You can't just be people you're related to. And so this, the, you get into these debates, because the, the fact is that a lot of uh, hunter-gatherer groups were very small. So the units that they were traveling in were like 150. Sometimes clan units could expand to a larger unit. But this is something that, it's not something that they dealt with extensively, but they would say, well, the ethnic group is in a way just a, a super family, just an expanded version of the, uh, the hunter-gatherer tribe. That's all it is. Um, and it, others would say, uh, we'll get to, we can get to the criticisms. One of the criticisms is that um, just as, for example, if you think about, you know, people, for example, being attached to their children, or children being attached to, the, to their parents, and then you have an adoptive child, and the parents are still attached to the adoptive child. So um, one of the arguments is that these instincts can largely be kind of tricked or fooled. That no one, people wouldn't deny that there are these instincts to kind of favor one's own, but that that, that can then be uh, adapted to, for example, adoptive children or uh, other kinds of groups, including uh, sports teams, including other, other sorts of groups that are not based on uh, relatedness. So that this instinct can be adapted and fooled and changed. And so we have see a lot of examples of this um, where you might have, you know, um, you know, if the American military has some black fighters and some white fighters and they fight the Germans, well, the, the white Americans are not going to ally with the white Germans. They're going to feel closer to the black Americans. Well, why is that? So there are a whole bunch of different uh, counter arguments to this. That's, however, that's not to say that the thesis does not have, uh, have some use. I mean, I mean and, and this is where we can have a debate over how important these uh, genetic things are. But one of the arguments is just that those, those genetic drivers are too diffuse that they can be played around with and adapted to different types of groups. And the other criticism is that it doesn't tell us where the boundaries necessarily will fall once you get past the small hunter-gatherer band of 50 or 100. How do we know whether that 50 or 100 will become 500 or, or 500,000? Where is the boundary? Yeah. So I guess, does he say that it's a, uh, because I guess no one's going to argue that there's a genetic that's identified in what you group this, but I guess he's going further and saying, 
would say that anything can be very flexible. And he's saying that actually it will identify your genetic relatives reliably. Well, what, what he said, actually, Vandenberg's pretty open. He says, look, I didn't, I didn't, I'm not going to pretend that this will tell us where the boundaries are between one group and another yeah. in the modern world. So he's not actually, actually clear. He's, he's, he's not saying this is a universal theory of, of, of ethnicity, but he is saying that it does explain some things, such as people's stronger attachment to ethnic identity than to class identity. So he has, he says that some groups are interest groups based on self-interest, and others are, are based are what he calls type 1 groups, which are uh, based on genetic uh, relatedness or, or pseudo-genetic relatedness. And those are going to be um, much more powerful for, for people. So you don't have to appeal to people's interests. You can, if you make an eth ethnic appeal, it'll trump generally a class appeal. And it's partly to do with this debate over World War I and why the, the class appeal failed compared to the national appeal. So. But we can, we'll, we, I'm happy to discuss that later. We just have to, I just want to sort of move on a little bit and talk about uh, some of the authors in, in the modernist and ethno-symbolist schools uh, as well. So, uh, and, and you're right, actually, that there are aspects of primordialism in the ethno-symbolist account. Uh, this idea of a need, a need to belong or a need for meaning is, to some extent, a sort of more of a psychological type of argument. Um, rather than a self-interested argument. So there are kind of points of contact, I would say, between the two. Uh, in terms of Eric Hobsbawm's work uh, as a classical modernist, so you can just see that in the title, Nations and Nationalism since 1780. So his argument really is that you get uh, the bourgeoisie in the modern state. As we move from feudalism to capitalism, that bourgeoisie has an interest in a number of things. So it has an interest in having uh, an area where it can trade and sell its products, so that, that necessitates to some extent a nation. Also, uh, an interest in a divided working class, so to divide a working class along ethnic lines or national lines is useful. Um, and perhaps an example of this might be the, uh, the Northern Ireland working class, uh, Northern Ireland Labour Party, which could never really bridge the Catholic-Protestant divide. So you might argue that's an example where it was quite handy that the Northern Ireland working class was divided on ethnic lines. You'd never get a class movement. Uh, now, so that, that is an example of, of this idea of, of division of the, uh, of the proletariat or of, in the Marxist account. Um, so that is, that's an example of instrumentalists. And the motives there for the formation then of groups are uh, self-interested to do with material power and economic interest. Another type of modernism that was not so focused on the narrow self-interest of the elite, even though that's actually behind the scenes also operating. And this is a more kind of functional account, which is the Anthony Giddens or Ernest Gellner account of modernism. So for Giddens, what happens is you get the state first. So you get the establishment of a modern state, which then needs to collect tax and raise an army and administer a bureaucracy. And so it then starts to create these systems, such as taking a census, making a map, border controls, customs posts, all of these things which are created by the state and then lead to a kind of what he calls a power container, which then delimits what then becomes the nation. So uh, it's these state systems, bureaucracy, mass education, and so on, which then lead to the creation of a nation. In Gellner's account, which is broadly similar, and this is an extremely influential account, uh, this book which was written in the early 1980s, uh, before Hobsbawm, for Gellner, his argument is that nations, again, follow states. It's the, the modern state is created first as a result, largely, of the modern industrial capitalist system. And the modern industrial capitalist system needs workers who can communicate with each other and with their masters in a way so they have to have a common language. So what happens if you, if you have the modern state and the industrial capitalist system coming in first and that requires, uh, so the, the first thing is the state, then the nation comes in second. Why does it come in? Well, you need to have a common language for people to communicate. And once you get the common language, um, you then get common nationhood. Uh, so Gellner has this notion of 
uh, it's just simply more functional for the modern industrial capitalist state if everybody has a common culture. Um, whereas in the past, in the, uh, the old uh, feudal system, it didn't really matter if people spoke dialects which were unintel mutually unintelligible. You didn't have to have a common language. You didn't have to have literacy. Uh, whereas in a modern state, you need to have literacy for the economy to function, to, for the economy to function well, for the state to function well, to defend itself, you, you have to have uh, a common culture and mass literacy, and that then necessitates schools, and it necessitates all of the trappings of the modern nation. Uh, so the emphasis there is very much, I think, coming out of this industrial capitalism. It's not the only thing. He also talks about so separat uh, separatist nationalism and I'm not going to say too much about that right now. We'll say something about that in subsequent lectures. Um, for, but what's, what, what's interesting in Gellner is he very much, like uh, Giddens, talks about the pre-modern period uh, as being radically different from the modern period. That is, in the pre-modern period, culture played a stratifying role. So you had a, an aristocratic culture and a peasant culture. Whereas in the modern period, you have a French culture, an English culture, a, a Spanish culture, whatever. Whereas he was saying, well, in the pre-modern period, actually, that stuff didn't matter. Uh, whereas culture and nation line up in the modern era. So speaking English really mattered versus speaking French versus speaking Spanish in the modern period. In the pre-modern period, it didn't matter at all. Well, what mattered was that you had an aristocratic culture which cut through the language areas, whether you spoke English, Spanish, not, not important, but whether you were an aristocrat, that's, that's, what's, that's what was important. So culture as a, as a stratifying role, not as uh, a vertical role in delimiting nations and political units. Um, and just to, to illustrate that, I'm just going to flick ahead here to, to what I think is a, a model that Gellner and Giddens and, and others held, particularly Gellner, this idea, as I said, of, of an elite which thought in terms of the empire or Christendom or Islam, a big space. So a cosmopolitan elite that didn't really care whether you spoke English or Italian or German or whatever. It didn't really matter, or, or Hungarian or whatever it is. So language is irrelevant in a way because culture doesn't determine political loyalty. Political loyalty is to the empire and, and is religiously determined. Christendom, Islam. That, that was the key distinction. Uh, and so you have this tiny imperial cosmopolitan elite motivated by religion and motivated by empire, perhaps. The, the, so they would speak whatever was the language of empire, so Latin in the, in, the, uh, in the West, or perhaps it was Arabic in the Muslim world. That was the high language. That was the religious liturgical language. That was really what was important. Then you had the mass of the population down here who lived in their villages. And the two didn't meet, you see. So the point was that what happens in, with modern nationalism is you get this cosmopolitan elite breaking up along linguistic lines, the language which didn't used to matter whether you spoke English, French, Hungarian, whatever. Now that really starts to matter. So this elite breaks up, this imperial call it, you know, if it was the Ottoman Empire, the Habsburg Empire, the Holy Roman Empire, whatever that empire was starts to break up on linguistic lines. And whereas the, they used to have nothing to do, even if you were an English-speaking uh, or a French-speaking elite, you had nothing to do with these peasants who spoke dialects of French or English. That, that was of no concern to you. You were much more interested in making links with aristocrats on the European continent or elsewhere. Um, well, now you do force links to the mass of the population. So what happens with modern nationalism is you get these broken up into segments where the masses are, are what, I, th I think Hobsbawm or Gellner, one of them may had this phrase, ushered into history. So the mass of the population, which was essentially asleep for most of human history according to this model, is suddenly politicized and brought into the nation here. So really politics was only about these groups uh, in the pre-modern period, but now the masses are brought into history in the modern period. And through mass conscription, mass taxation, mass education, 
taught the national language, and a new type of politics emerges. So that's kind of the, the Gellner, this is sort of the modern, modernist model, that you have a radical shift between pre-modern and modern periods. Um, let me just, oops, hop back to, um, right, and, and just some other writers in t that are worth talking about. There are similar themes that come out here. So Perry Anderson, another sort of new Mar Marxist writer, um, he has this phrase, the state made use of patriotic sentiment for the first time, arguing that patriotism was something new, that prior to this, states didn't bother with patriotism. They hired mercenaries to fight their battles. Maybe they raised money uh, by sponsoring the odd exploratory voyage to the new world uh, by, through taxes and, and excise. They didn't bother uh, with patriotism, but now, for Anderson, this is something new, the use of patriotism by the state. And that's where nationalism first comes from, because it's useful for the state. You can see in this language of um, making use of or inventing nations is very much this idea that the modern state comes first, the nation comes second as a byproduct, almost a second order phenomenon, um, and not the driving force. So it's politics, the state, the top down, that's the driving force. Nation, culture, all that stuff is secondary. It's, it's the, na you know, the state can take it or leave it. They decide it's important, so now they make use of it. The other part of it is this idea of that Gellner has this phrase, state invents nations where they didn't exist before. This idea that the state creates the nation. Do um, you think that in these countries that were created, and states that were created? Yeah, so Gellner talks a lot about the I mean, he uses other words, but he's talking about the Habsburg Empire very much. So he's talking about the creation of nations such as uh, you know, Czechoslovakia, um, uh, Finland, the, uh, the Baltic states, um, Germany. So these nations, he would argue there was nothing there before. That you just had the Habsburg Empire, you had the Prussian Empire, you had different kinds of empires, and suddenly you got this thing, Germany, that that's invented. So the modern Okay, so Pakistan and Sudan, you're right, are those clearly were uh, creations of a state, like Pakistan for sure, uh, and Sudan as well. Um, and yeah, and I think in that case, you could say the state was created first, and then they attempt to create a national identity. But what's confusing, though, however, is in creating the national identity, how much do they have to take account of the uh, traditions and customs of the groups? that are already living there, like the Punjabis, or Sindhis, and yeah. So, so that, that's the question that we want to, yeah, go ahead. When he's looking at the Habsburgs, surely most of those nations were created without a state in order to get a state. Um, right. I mean, it wouldn't be, I mean, I presume he's aware of this. I mean, he must have an argument to explain. Yeah, he does. So his argument about breakaway is that you got, you had elites from the periphery of the empire who, who went to Vienna, let's say Vienna, uh, and they spoke whatever dialects. Now, they, yes, they learned German, uh, but maybe they had trouble advancing in the civil service. or So they, they had a kind of blocked mobility. So that was one grievance they had. But also that they just felt by breaking away, they could have their own thing. They could have their own power base where they were running the show. And so there's that motivation, that kind of political material motivation that, that explains the breakup of the empires and it's not the kind of cultural nationalism which Smith emphasizes. Um, so that's kind of an important difference. Um, it, it, and here, arguing that the state's creating something without reference to what went before. That's what's important, that it's not bound or rooted by whatever was there. So the modern French state is not connected organically to the France of Louis XIV, uh, whereas Smith would say it's absolutely connected. So this is where you have a debate. Um, how important was the fact that there was something called France under Louis XIV to the creation of modern France? Um, okay. So you, you have different modernist theorists. You've got uh, the first generation, if you like, uh, Hobsbawm, Gellner, and so on who either place the emphasis on that instrumental interest of capitalists and bureaucrats, that's more the instrumentalist side, or this kind of functionalism that 
in order to run an economy smoothly, you kind of have to have a common language. You kind of have to have a common you know, sense of common national sentiment. So it's sort of useful for the modern economy. So it's a functional, but again, it follows. First, you get the state and the modern economy. Second, you get the nation. It's a byproduct. It's not the driver. Um, and also, so, uh, and there have been some writings, writers in this genre as well since, uh, particularly Rogers Brubaker's work on institutionalism. Again, focusing on, you get these political structures. You, he used the Soviet Union as an example. You had the republics of the Soviet Union that were created almost completely artificially through drawing lines on the map uh, by the Soviet state. And even though it wasn't their intention, those republics then become the basis of something real later on because they are a place that elites can go to break away from the Soviet Union. So he's, he's, he's essentially arguing it was the lines on the map and the republic system that comes first, which is a top-down political creation without reference to what came before, which is again where the ethnosymbolists would have an issue with him on that. And therefore, it's the creation of those republics that explains the subsequent emergence of nationalism in the former Soviet Union. Uh, Bruley, Tilly, and Mao all place a lot of emphasis on power as opposed to the Hobbsbaum type emphasis on the bourgeoisie and economics. So they're not in the Marxist mode. They're more in the mode of saying this is to do with war and high politics. For uh, Tilly in particular, the boundaries of nations today are given by, uh, by the high watermark of the battles and diplomatic treaties that were made in the past. So wherever those treaties happen to set the boundaries between warring dynasts, those subsequently become the boundaries for contemporary nations. Yeah. I'm interested in where else, if they, do they look at other places in the world? Because I mean, it's a common criticism right. of Eurocentric, and it is true. Yeah, it is true, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but they must, like, do they, do, they, do they say that because modern nationalism is embedded in Europe, that's what we're going to look at? Or do, are they just ignoring? Well, they don't ignore the rest of the world, and, and, and there is a lot of literature on the rest of the world, but they start usually with Europe, and then they say what happens is these ideas are then taken up by um, other states elsewhere in the world, like Latin America, and then first Latin America, and then subsequently the post-colonial world, India, Indian nationalism, late 19th century. Yeah. Because you argue that uh, Tilly's um, theory is similar to a kind of neo-institutionist kind of approach, kind of a historical institutionist approach of kind of looking at the chain of causation and, and looking at kind of um, historical knock-on effect uh, to you know, present-day occurrences. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think that that's in common with Brubaker. And, I mean, it's different kinds of institutionalism, but they're all really about that kind of, you get some critical juncture and then you get a path dependency. Yeah, and it's, but it's, it's really about the institutions which are central to it. Um, yeah. Just a quick one thing about the rest of the world, because I guess yep. their theory, uh, even if they're looking at the development, it relies on the fact that the rest of the world was equally localized as Europe. And there's a good argument to make that in the whole Middle Ages, Europe was especially localized because there'd been collapse of the Roman Empire, whereas in other parts of the world, that didn't happen, like in China. So, I mean, does, doesn't their argument completely rely on the fact that? their conception of pre-modern Europe is, was the same all over the world, which... Uh, absolutely, yeah, yeah, it does. And in fact, there's, there are some people who argue there's a particularly East Asian form of the nation, because East Asia seems to have developed at a quite early stage um, what seems to be quite a successful form of the nation. And by that, I'm just saying, if you look at Korea and China and Thailand and, and some of these East Asian societies, they actually... the, the the state and the boundaries of the state haven't changed that much. And in fact, the cultures of these states are relatively homogenous going back. So some would say there's an Asian form of the nation. Others would say, well, no, it's just a, an Asian version of the same process. Um, so that's, that's maybe something else we want to want to consider. Yeah, well, I think for the post-colonial situation, there is perhaps more of a sense that, that I think even ethno-symbolists would admit that actually the colonial powers drawing had a large, a large emphasis in terms of drawing of the boundaries, setting up of the state institutions, um, which then subsequently become important. So I think, you know, obviously you have had pre-colonial kingdoms, which in some senses 
might have been the origin of, so I mentioned last time uh, the, the Congo, for example, or the Akan, or a number of these uh, pre-colonial empires which were very important uh, in the formation of what we can, I, I think the ethnosymbolists would say you have examples of ethnicity in the pre-colonial period in Africa which the modernists would probably say, no, you don't. And so, you know, you'd have, I remember at a lecture uh, Terence Ranger was giving, who, was, who wrote the book, The Invention of Tradition, and someone from, I think Zimbabwe had said, well, you know, we, you know, this is the origin of the Shona people, and so on and so forth, and, and Ranger was saying, well, I'm sure that didn't happen, I'm sure that, you know, he was, he, he, he sort of says, <laughs> well, I, I think that's probably a fabricated uh, story, and there, there was no identity back then. Now, I mean, Whatever. I mean, he was being honest, but I think a lot of people would say, well, you know, where's the proof of that claim? You know, you have to have, what kind of proof do we have that there wasn't um, an identity there? There is a proof, the one who are defending Right, right. Well, exactly. So this is where it gets down to that kind of level of, anyway, I'll, I'll finish so we can come back to these, uh, these debates a, a bit later. Um, so the, the, the commonness, as I've said, the emphasis on the state uh, as the first prior cause and a nation as secondary. Um, the emphasis on uh, economic modernity, capitalism, industrialism, bourgeoisie, uh, the role of political institutions. Uh, this, is, this is central in all modernist theories. They, there's a lot of emphasis on high politics and a kind of top-down transmission from uh, the state. Uh, so there's less of an emphasis on bottom-up processes, less of an emphasis on the role of continuity with pre-modern social structures, and they would tend to downplay or deny non-instrumental motivations amongst the nationalist elites, such as um, authenticity, quest for spiritual meaning. Okay. Um, we're going to talk about this a bit more when we talk about straight state nationalism. This is just to say that for modernists, they would say you first get a state, and then the state creates the official language by taking a dialect like Tuscan in Italy and making that the official language. So it's not that language comes first, then the nation. It's actually the state comes first, picks a language, wipes the others out, and creates the language, creates the culture. And then through these processes, which we'll talk about more in subsequent lectures, they then institutionalize the nation. So again, state first. Uh, nation and national identity second. And then you mentioned this idea of, of the, the West and, and the rest of the world. Um, I think a lot of the argument might be that the Western model spreads. Now, Benedict Anderson does talk a lot about Latin America. Uh, so perhaps he's an exception, but a lot of writers would say you then get from the French Revolution, French Revolution is influential and is taken up by uh, other nationalist leaders outside of Europe. And so, and then colonialism also brings this model to the rest of the world. So the nation-state model becomes the universal model worldwide. Uh, as, and, and this is partly also the ideology of nationalism. Uh, we don't, I'm not sure if we'll have time. I have to sort of, I'm not sure if we're going to cover ethnic nationalism this year. But the romantic movement beginning in the early 19th century, uh, for example, is something that influences Hindu nationalism, Indian nationalism. So that, that the, the Romantic movement is really the second phase. It's after this Enlightenment nationalism of Rousseau. You then get the ideas of Herder and Fichte and, and, and Hegel and the German Romantics, which then arguably are more influential in places like India. Um, okay, now just in terms of, I know I'm kind of pushed the time here, but I'm just going to try and go through quite quickly the ethno-symbolist counter-argument to the modernist claim. So for, for perennialists such as Adrian Hastings, they, were, they would argue that nations uh, have much longer histories than the modernists would allow. Even ethno-symbolists like Smith who say, Smith argues modern nations are built upon pre-modern ethnic cores from which they draw their symbolism and take their form. But Hastings says, no, actually, even in the pre-modern period, you have fully-fledged nations where you have the mass of the population acting on the basis of nationalism and nation. And so he uses the example of England going back all the way to the time of Bede, which we talked about last time as an example. Ask the question, why is it that the Bible was translated into English, into French, into 
these vernacular languages. If it was the case that the elite just spoke Latin and the masses spoke their dialects, why bother translating the Bible? Why not just hold mass in Latin, have the Bible in Latin? Why was it important? Why do we see that? Yeah. Do that. There's right, a great right. deal of, kind of friction from the elites to allow it to be translated, so that could kind of uh, counter the fact that this was a progressive thing. Yeah, sure, absolutely. So that would be a kind of counter counter argument. So, you know, what 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 was it also? And the other idea of, of the spread of the, again, it's the vernacular, whether it's the Bible, whether it is services, whether it is wandering poets, uh, literary figures, and, and folk myths. What is, what is the importance of vernacular language? Also, Hastings talks about religion as providing that pre-modern medium of mass communication that print capitalism later provides. He says you can have uh, a mass communication system based on religion, and it's not necessarily all centered on Rome or all centered on uh, Constantinople or Istanbul or whatever the center of the empire is. Uh, that actually you do get divisions within the clergy which form the basis then of uh, potential basis for nationalism. Anthony Smith, uh, likewise, what he focuses on is two things. One, the, what he considers to be the ethnic origins of nations. So he, tastes, he argues in the case of a, a place like France, French Revolution, the name France is taken from the pre-modern French kingdom. And the French language, too, is a continuity with the pre-modern French kingdoms. There are symbolic elements that are also taken from the pre-modern France. He would argue that, in fact, the notion of France as a hexagon even goes back to Roman times. Uh, and so that a lot of what's taken for granted as, as in France actually has that pre-modern origin. So you cannot talk about modern France without pre-modern France. And that therefore, um, these pre-modern myths and symbols which had already developed were very important for the, in establishing the, the boundaries and the contents of modern nationalism. Also, he uh, puts a lot of emphasis not only on the ruling class and bourgeoisie, which is the emphasis in the modernist writing, but on these romantic intellectuals who, in the 19th century who he says play a big role in developing the myths and memories and stories of the nation and its cultural symbols and trying to expand the consciousness of the group of its own past, of its own traditions. So it was this quest for authenticity and meaning amongst these romantic intellectuals, which he says are important. He also s argues that you cannot just invent a uh, nation. It doesn't just happen. Once you create the state, the nation doesn't just automatically show up uh, on demand. Uh, to provide glue for the, um, for the bourgeoisie to run, a, run an economy. And actually, you have to create something that will resonate in some form with the mass of the population. And what that means is, therefore, not any invention will have resonance and will, will take in the population. And it also means that uh, particular cultural uh, myth-symbol complexes, so um, particular versions of ethnic history, are transmitted by institutions over time, and these become very enduring. So they don't require a state necessarily to endure. They can inhere in uh, institutions below the state, religion, uh, patriotic societies, ethnic associations, and so on, that can protect, incubate, and transmit these um, myth-symbol complexes. So therefore, culture has a permanence, a rootedness, that is not dependent on politics and you know, very often drives politics. So it's these cultural myths and symbols which in many ways led parts of empires to break away. So it was the cultural nationalists that came first, then the political nationalism followed. So culture, in a way, is a motivating force that comes first rather than second, as in the modernist account. Uh, Okay, and, and again, the claim in this book, The Ethnic Origins of Nations, very much his signature book, is that uh, ethnicity has a very long history, existed somewhere on the planet at all times since antiquity. It doesn't date from 1789. Uh, and, and again, like Hastings, puts a lot of emphasis on religion as one way in which a sense of ethnicity was incubated and transmitted over time. Um, also, in, as part of this, there's a criticism of the Gelmer-Giddens model of the pre-modern 
pre-modern world as consisting of these uh, a narrow elite, which had nothing to do with these individuals who just lived in their narrow villages. Actually, what's that? Yeah, so for Smith, he would argue, in fact, that there was a lot more going on. Uh, we, we talked about that last time. You had diasporas and sects and um, aristocratic ethnic groups. And you had a whole number of different formations where sometimes the masses were mobilized by the elites in the, in the pre-modern period in the name of culture and identity. And two examples that he uses are ancient Israel and Armenia, which he labels ethnic states, yeah, as, as two instances of things which look very much like nations in the pre-modern period, although he doesn't call them nations. He says, no, at this point, they're still ethnic states because they lack certain aspects of nationhood, which we only find in the modern period. So Smith goes along with some aspects of mo modernism, but he, goes, he also says that the modern nation is built on pre-modern ethnic core in many cases, not in all cases. Uh, and asks a number of questions. Why, the, why do nationalists feel this need to appeal to an ancient ethnic past if that's really unimportant, if it really didn't matter what came before, uh, if nations can be invented out of thin air, why, is there is, why do all nations, even new ones, feel this need to appeal to an ancient past? Um, and also, do, do current nationalist constructions not constrain the freedom of future nationalists to invent and create different symbolic forms? Um, okay, I'm just, let me just, I'm just going to actually, there's last few slides here. I'm just going to say something about John Hutchinson's contribution. His argument is more that it's not that the ancient Greeks and the modern Greeks shared exactly the same view of what it meant to be Greek. Uh, th there isn't this continuity from the, from the ancient to the modern time, but the fact there was an ancient Greece and that it was written about and recorded, and perhaps there are monuments such as the Acropolis, the fact there was that historical layer that was deposited by, by history means that modern Greek nationalism may very well make use of that in their conception of who they are. So it's not incidental. It actually constrains, to some extent, uh, what the modern Greeks are going to do. Whereas if instead uh, in Greece you had, I don't know, Celtic crosses everywhere and, and the, the, a history of, of the ancient Celts being there, then maybe modern Greek national identity would, would, be form, you know, would actually take a different form. It might look to a, a Celtic past um, because that would be the, the historical resources that were there they would be staring them in the face. They might be able to turn their face away and look to something else, but it's going to be harder uh, than, if it's, than if it's there. So this is just the idea that you get that, that modern nations have to reckon with their actual pasts, uh, which kind of set out a menu of options from which they can choose, but they can't go off the menu, if you like. Um, so the past does constrain the present. Um, past constructions do constrain the, the present. I'm not going to say anything about this theory uh, here, which I can get to later, which is this idea of nations as zones of conflict. Um, so just to wrap up, last two slides is that in terms of this debate between modernists and perennialists, the modernists would say, well, there's not, there's a lack of record of what the people actually thought. There's not a record of, of mass sentiment of nationalism. So we don't have a lot of emphasis in the pre-modern period of mass popular sentiment of large numbers of people fighting in the name of the nation. Um, we can see in, in many cases, such as in, in China or Italy, where there wasn't much of a sense of Italianness. The northern Italians came down to the south, and the southerners wanted nothing to do with them. Clearly, the idea of Italy wasn't resonating. Uh, so in, in a number of cases, they would say it's attempts by these nationalist intellectuals fell on deaf ears. That's an example of where clearly the masses didn't share the same conception as the elites. Um, and they would say, we see the rise and fall of groups, many ethnic groups like the Burgundians or the Northumbrians are no longer with us. Does this not indicate that, in fact, there's a lot of movement, a lot of fluidity in uh, the formation of groups over time? Um, against that, you have the ethnosymbolists would say, well, what are we going to, it's one thing to say that, but if you look at written records, we see lots and lots of mention, whether it's in the Bible, whether it's in elite chronicles of nations, groups, ethnicity, since antiquity. Um, so those elite writings really are our most important source. We can see language vernacular spreading 
quite early on in Europe, well before the French Revolution. Um, many kingdoms had myths of common origin and myths of descent. Why did they feel the need to have a Scottish myth of descent as opposed to you know, the, a, a Polish-Lithuanian myth of descent and so on? Why, why the need to have these different myths? Um, and that there are records of where you had mass military and political activity involving whole communities, involving elites uniting with the masses. And that this uh, does show that there was mass mobilization in the name of something like nations, if not nations, ethnic groups in the pre-modern period. OK, I'm going to just leave it there. and. Um,